Out of the University of Cambridge, welcome to Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. I'm Matt Moody, and I'm a PhD student here at the Center of Development Studies. And I'm Sarah Mohammed, and I'm a PhD student in Politics and International Studies here at the University of Cambridge, and we're your hosts for this season of the Human Rights Podcast. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with the people who study them, the people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. Today we're talking about the law, politics, and human rights implications of drones and targeted killings. What can international humanitarian law tell us about the legal status of rights? Can human rights prevent drone strikes? Should they? And if so, how? Joining us today is Christoph Haynes, the former UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions. Today he serves on the UN Human Rights Committee and is Professor of Human Rights Law at the University of Pretoria. Thank you for joining us, Christoph. Also joining us today is our regular panelists, Aranjadid Basu, Niusha Bastani, and Michael Barton. We are also joined today by Daniel Ferguson, who is joining us for the first time on the pod. Welcome on board. It's great to be here. Yes, good morning. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, I'm Christoph Haynes. Uh, I was UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary Arbitrary Executions between 2010 and 2016. As you mentioned, I'm now on the Human Rights Committee. Uh, my focus as rapporteur was on the right to life. So uh, that particular mandate means that uh, there are 40 or so such mandates in the UN, and each one of us is given a particular area, and in some cases a particular right that one focuses on. So in my case, on extrajudicial executions, which has over time been interpreted as being focused on the right to life. Um, so it's mostly um, outside of armed conflict but it has also evolved into being engaged with issues of armed conflict and drones then became part of that. So you work for the UN Human Rights Committee, and which is a body of experts who monitors implementation on the International uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights? That's okay. right. And, and the work of them consists of making reports and recommendations to, to member states? Or, or how does that work? Can you explain that to our audience, please? Yeah, so, so um, whereas the mandate on executions is a single individual is appointed by the Human Rights Council as an expert to be, to some extent, the guardian of a particular right or particular issue, in the case of the treaty bodies, of which the Human Rights Committee is one, um, one is a member of a group. And so in our case with the Human Rights Committee, there are 18 members, 18 experts, as you mentioned, um, and they basically have three functions. One is to consider state reports. States have to submit between three and six every three and six years. They have to submit a report on implementation of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. There's also the possibility of communications for states that have adopted that, uh, that procedure. Um, so that's almost like a court case being brought to the committee um, and then the committee expresses its views on that. And in the third place, we, we adopt general comments on particular issues and also on particular rights. So of relevance here is that we at the moment working on a general comment on the right to life. Um, so previously there have been general comments on freedom of expression and so forth. Um, but this one that we are now working on, we should be finishing it next year, is on the right to life. So, of course, that's of, of interest as well to the issue of armed drones. Yeah. And, and so just to clarify that, the, the committee creates legally binding obligations, correct? Well, I think the, the, the approach is to say it's not a court, uh, and in that sense it's not a primary source of, of binding international law. It is, however, the body created by the states that have ratified this um, 
particular treaty to interpret the treaty. And for that reason, it is uh, we, we see it as highly persuasive. And um, I think the, the phrase that is often used as is with as with international law that most states most of the time follow most of, of, <laughs> of what we say with of course the exception that it's not done always. Of course. So say you make some some general recommend. So say you make some general recommendations on on some particular um, issue uh, and for states to follow and, and and they decide not to. What are the kind of consequences within the context of the committee yeah. for those states? So it's obviously different from a domestic system where there is a court taking legally binding decisions and that's enforced by the police, you know, sort of courts and guns, so to, to, so to speak, courts backed up by guns. Um, in, the, in the case of the international system, we are committees, commissions, uh, those sort of things. There's not a, a world human rights court as such that takes binding decisions. Um, and that is then backed up by international pressure, by peer pressure. Uh, I think increasingly we find that the world community is a closer knit community. It's difficult for a state to actually go its own way. And we know about states even today who do so, but th those are very few and far between that states completely go their own way. It's almost your, 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 your ticket to the international community today is to what extent do you conform with these human rights and other international principles. So um, I think one often finds also that states preemptively uh, uh, internalize these rules and they, they, their conduct is, 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 is formed accordingly. Also many of the people who lead states are people who are in, in contact with others and there's almost this, this sort of transnational kind of community that develops where people think this is the, the right thing to do. Um, I think at the same time one should be realistic about the limits of international law. Um, the alternative, of course, is a lawless kind of world in which nothing is, uh, there's no even an attempt to regulate it. I don't think one should think that international law is the opposite of that and creates a world which is completely regulated and, and uh, to some extent I must say that's also a good thing because we probably don't want to have a situation where states don't have a sense of agency and where there is a voluntary compliance with things because if everything is enforced um, then it, it may be of little duration. So it's also important that if they, that even if things go wrong, international law provides a sort of a gravitational pull to say, well, hopefully in a few years' time, your conduct will, will, will change. And certainly for myself, coming from South Africa and many of the other countries that I've worked in as a rapporteur, it has been clear that even if states don't comply now, uh, the international law does exercise some gravitational pull, but we should not expect much more from international law than that. Professor Haynes, uh, in recent months we have seen the UK Secretary of State for Defence suggest that drones should be used to hunt down and kill all British foreigners who have gone to Syria to join the Islamic State. Uh, in light of these sort of comments, I wondered if I could get you to just chart out Generally, what are the rules that apply to uh, targeting particular individuals and when can a uh, individual be legally targeted uh, by a drone strike? Yeah. yeah, and so of course it's useful, I think, from the start to say we're talking about drones um, and, and there are different kinds of drones. So there's surveillance drones and those unarmed kinds of drones, which is not, not what we're talking about here. So we're talking about armed drones. Um, and then um, the question is, as, as you've put it, uh, when may drones be used? Um, and in particular then in situations where people are suspected of being terrorists and in other parts of the world. Um, and I think it's useful to start off by saying that uh, the 
default regime is human rights. Um, that's the starting point. And when people pose a threat, an immediate threat, um, that can be countered by the use of force. And the rules that apply to drones are not in principle different from the rules that apply to any other kind of use of force. Um, for drones, of course, what distinguishes them is that uh, they are remotely controlled. Um, so instead of having um, a pilot in the uh, aircraft, for example, but these could be land vehicles as well, it could be uh, on, on water, um, but typically unmanned aerial vehicles. Uh, so with, with a drone, instead of having uh, a pilot on board, uh, there's a human being in remote control of the actual release of force. Um, that's, of course, on, at the same time different than from a autonomous weapons where there's no human being involved, it's or directly involved, it's a computer that takes that, that sort of decision. But I think the starting point is to say that um, the default position is human rights. If there's a threat, an imminent, uh, imminent threat, then force can be used, whether it's with drones or with any other kind of, 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 of manned system. Um, during um, armed conflict, in particular the conduct of hostilities, um, the, the right to life is interpreted with reference to the rules of international humanitarian law. Um, and that only arises in particular cases. So, so um, in most cases where drones are used, we're talking about a, a non-international armed conflict in the sense that uh, one of the parties is a non-state actor um, seen as a terrorist organization or however, however they are described. Um, and that's typically the kind of situation that one, that one may potentially have. Um, but for something to be quali to, 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 to qualify as a, a non-international armed conflict, uh, there must be a certain level of organization on the part of the, of the non-armed group, or non-state group, and there must be a certain intensity of violence. Then international humanitarian law applies. And, and then to come to your question then, um, so, so during such a situation where that is met, and it's, it, that's a threshold that should be met, um, people who are uh, directly participating in hostilities, uh, ca causing direct harm uh, may be targeted. And I think there's also increasing uh, 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 approach to say that people with a continuing combat function, those who are members of that armed group, that they may be targeted. So Professor Hinz, you spoke about how um, in many situations where targeted killings or drones are used, you are faced against an enemy that is a non-state actor. But of course, the way in which these conflicts are, have, are shaped have, have evolved over time. I mean, in the sense that now you have a unique situation where you have, say, the United States, for example, engaged in supposed armed conflict against entities, non-state actors that are located in other countries. So that, of course, begs the question, what are the nature of obligations that the US would owe to, first of all, the uh, targets themselves, second, the civilians in these countries? That, of course, is a very different ballgame to when you are possibly operating in your own territory. So how does international law sort of reconcile this, I mean, this transition from non-international armed conflict within your own territory to a sort of hybrid form of armed conflict where you're op operating extraterritorially, but you're operating against non-state entities. So what is, I know you've written a lot, lot about this, so if you could just share your views on this. If I can put it into 30 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, and, and I think it's very valid. And, 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 and so I find it useful to think about um, different layers of protection. So international law provides a broader, from the point of view of the right to life, provides a 
broader uh, a layer of protection to life by protecting territory, by protecting states, uh, so that one does not have a situation where um, states can at will apply force anywhere in the world. So um, uh, the use ad bellum, the rules about uh, the interstate use of force, say that there are only very restricted conditions under which force can be used on the territory of another state. And that's really one of the main innovations of the of the UN Charter of 1945. Um, I always find that almost uh, uh, shocking uh, to, to say that throughout human history, war wasn't outlawed until very recently. Um, and, and of course, there were there were mores against it and, and so forth. But uh, really, the department of what we would today call defense in many states was uh, the department of war. Um, and that's how borders were formed. And that's how the world's population was divided into countries and so forth. Um, and it was instrument of foreign policy and a legitimate one. So the UN then started and we now since 45 to now uh, more than 70 years, we have this period of long, the long peace, as uh, it's sometimes called, where major power are not in conflict with each other. It's probably the longest period in human history recorded where you don't have that sort of thing. Um, so so it's, it's remarkable what happened after the Second World War that the main purpose was to prevent the Third World War from taking place. And so far, so good. We do not know where, where things are going. Uh, but it's significant that this has happened. So the first layer of defense is that the UN in its charter um, prohibited the use of force on the territory of another state. So there are, there are uh, very clearly defined exceptions. So if it's with the consent of the state, force can be used on the territory of that state. Um, and if it's uh, in self-defense, um, you can use force on the territory of another state. Those are the two that typically come in with the drone strikes that are relevant to drone strikes. It's also the possibility of the Security Council authorizing such use of force. Um, but that's the first layer of defense is that, that to contain the spread of the use of force beyond one's own borders, um, that, that, uh, that the use of force on the territory of another state is prohibited. It's not in the first place aimed at the protection of life, but it has a very significant uh, uh, impact on that. Then the second one is that, that if force is used anywhere in one's own territory or another territory, I think most, uh, most of the people in the field will say that, uh, that, as I mentioned before, that human rights is the default uh, uh, legal regime. It continues to apply during a situation outside of armed conflict, it applies during armed conflict. But with armed conflict, if this threshold, threshold is met, the one that I've mentioned earlier as far as the non-international armed conflicts are concerned, there's a certain level of organization, there's a certain intensity of violence, um, then it becomes exceptional. And then the, the, the standards for the use of force actually drop quite significantly. The protection that is granted to the individuals uh, is, is, is much less. Um, if IHL applies. So typically, um, outside of an armed conflict situation, you can respond to a threat. So if you are imminently threatened yourself, or you as an as a individual, or you as a, as a police officer, uh, you can respond. And if that's the only way in which to protect life, you can take life. Um, but that's a very high test. Um, if, if in the case of armed conflict, if there's really an armed conflict, and that's of course, almost everything comes back to that question, are we really dealing with an armed conflict, then the, the protection drops. And then the starting point is it's not based on threat that force can be used. So if, if there's a threat to you that you can retaliate, but it's based on status. Um, so typically it is based on the question whether that person is a combatant on the other side, 
or then with the exception that um, that that uh, people directly participate in hostilities can be can be targeted, and then this continuing combat function kind of approach, which is based on conduct, but it tries to get to the status uh, that you are a member of the other party. But I think the overall idea is that during armed conflict, it's no longer the individual who must pose a threat. It is that your status is that you are in a conflict situation where you are part of a group that poses a threat and it's that status that determines your targetability. And I should say then perhaps also just in terms of the difference, um, if one wants to almost exaggerate it with, with outside of armed conflict in ordinary law enforcement, the approach is the right to life prevails and as an exception force may be used. It's almost the opposite in armed conflict is that once you can use force, uh, you do not need that graduation, graduated use of force that you must try to do the, um, the, the least possible harm and then only eventually. Um, there is, of course, now, I think, a, a development which says that if you can actually uh, uh, detain, um, if you can capture rather than kill, even in armed conflict, you should do that. But that's not the traditional approach. Um, I think many of us are, feel that, that, that just in terms of principles of humanity, that if you're far away from a hot battlefield, if you can actually do that, uh, that should be done. Drones, of course, does not allow capture. So, so in many cases, that doesn't come to, to the fore. Yeah, so in many cases, like actually, the drones are sort of uh, perpetuating and elongating this sort of state of exception, almost perpetuating this idea that it, the principle of anything goes, right? And, and this, is, this is something that sort of we've been struggling with a lot, particularly when it comes to the question of targeted killings versus signature strikes, which has been a, a debate that has been coming um, up a lot since, I suppose, the Obama administration and, and the use of metadata in identifying situations that may appear to be a terrorist stronghold without actually being able to identify uh, persons, so to speak. And so you strike and sometimes it turns out it's a wedding, but you might be lucky. And I'm sort of wondering to what extent can drones also be an excuse for innovating loopholes within uh, IHL and and what are some of the things that we can do maybe to to better regulate this this arena? Uh, perhaps just coming to your first point first, um, uh, yes, I think the the, um, the 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 traditional way of seeing armed conflict is very much uh, as you indicated that um, it's the exception. So the the normal standard is one of law enforcement. It is one of human rights. is the only legal regime that that controls the situation. It's. It, I. I think about it as the protect life principle applies. So if you want to, if it's the only way that you can protect life, your own life or the life of others, that you take a life, yes, that that's acceptable. So what you are balancing in such a case is life versus life. But you can't balance life versus the authority of the state or the glory of God or money or property or anything like that. So life is 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 exceptional. It's only when you are dealing with life against life that you can really say you may, because then you're not undermining the value of life, you're actually sure. protecting life by, by right. doing that. Um, the exception then is armed conflict, which which just creates such a situation of chaos uh, that, that it's not possible to see whether it's a threat in any particular case, unrealistic to expect that to happen. But the, the important, important point is this should be an exception. Um, and, and, and then the, 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 the sort of the Kantian idea is it's not just a, a, a use ad bellum, but use post bellum, that there must be a time 
unfortunately there are times when there are war are wars but there must also be a time afterwards for recovery and then you return to the norm so the norm is not is not it's it's challenged but the norm is not uh, uh, um, cancelled out by the fact that there's, that there's an armed conflict we always know this is the exception we'll go back to the norm the problem with the technologies that we now have is that it's possible to have a lo low intensity uh, conflict uh, that m may not even exactly be on the level where you think this is all-out war. Right. It's a low intensity spread, spread across the world. But for that reason, there's also not that natural situation where you say, well, the water builds up in the dam, then the dam wall breaks, and then we recover the, the dam wall, right. and there's a time for growth again. But when the water just goes up a certain level, it's so easy to press that button. Sure. And then immediately uh, you try to solve this problem. It's almost a sense of, of can-do and of, of uh, um, fixing this problem immediately. Um, but then the next week it's the same situation. In a year's time it's the same situation. There's not a stop to it. And so by that, in, in doing that, you eventually find that you've, you've actually, uh, uh, the, the, the rule is no longer the rule. The rule, the, the exception has now become the rule. So, 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 so I do think that is the danger that, that drones pose. I certainly don't think that drones are unlawful weapons as such. I think the normal international principles that apply to any use of force apply to drones as well. I, I personally don't think we need a new law on drones. Uh, we simply need to apply the, the existing uh, law much better. And that brings me to the second part of your question, if I can take a, go into the next 30 seconds for that one. Um, so so um, you mentioned signature strikes. Now, of course, in, in the case of, of all armed conflicts, one has to, in a way, decide who the targets are. And so typically insignia uniforms have been used for that sort of thing. It's a different kind of war that we now have, often urban warfare, often uh, people who are not wearing uniforms, uh, non-state actors by definition in many cases, um, who are not, not wearing uh, particular identification signals. Um, so, so, so one, one ha if you say that a non-international armed conflict is possible in such a situation, there must be a way of identifying the enemy. Now, the, the, um, if you have a reliable way of identifying them, for example, you, can, uh, you have surveillance and you can see that they engage in an in a, in a operation uh, involving the transportation of weapons and so forth, you can actually identify. You do not need to know their names, uh, but you, you can see from, from what they're doing that they are in this category that could be, say, for example, continuing combat function or directly participating. Um, the problem comes in with, with uh, unreliable indicators. Um, so if, if you start saying the mere fact that somebody's carrying a weapon, um, well, that could be because in that particular culture, people carry weapons, or it could right. be a hunter. Um, and if somebody is simply identified because you're a male of military age, for example, um, that's not enough um, in a particular territory. So, so there, there are no fixed and hard rules, but, but uh, the problem comes in with... I don't think signature strikes, again, are necessarily always unlawful, but if it depends on what the signature is. If the signature is not reliable, and that's, that's really the test, um, if it's not a rele relevant, if it's not a reliable, if it doesn't yield a high degree of certainty that this is a person who can actually be targeted, 
uh, that 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 becomes the problem and I think it becomes of course having technology gives you a sense of power and it gives you a sense of of, of you press a button and solve a problem on other another part of the world it becomes very tempting yeah. then to say well the world will be a better place without this person um, but I think what one easily forgets in that sort of situation is that uh, uh, it, it, it may be that there are other ways of solving this problem and you may be creating more problems. You may think on the short term the world is better with uh, Saddam Hussein or whatever the case may be, uh, Gaddafi, it may be that that's your, your impression. Um, but if you go down that route, one can think of many people who maybe the world will be better without them. But that doesn't mean that one is, that's the only way of solving this particular problem. You can find other ways of, of outbalancing their power. And that's, I think, where the longer term thing again comes in um, of, of development and of international negotiations, giving that a chance and not, not too readily press that button. Because I think that's the, the danger of drones is not that it's unlawful. The danger is it's too easy. And for that reason, the existing legal frameworks, both in this outer level of protection of when may force be used in another state, that should be enforced rigorously. And then in this inner circle, when life is protected, not territory, um, that when is IHL applicable and, and against whom is IHL applicable, those rules should be enforced very vigorously. And, and if I may just put in a plug for technology there, that's where technology, I think, is is of help as well. One, one should not think that technology is is the big problem because it makes it so easy to use force. Um, the fact that technology is available and that it can be improved uh, makes uh, makes it possible in many cases to, to do proper identification. But I think what comes with that as well is because states have more power, they have more technology available, they should be measured more strictly uh, uh, against the standards because they've got this technology. Precisely. And I think to come back to that, I'm drawing on the anecdote that I shared with you yesterday from my meeting at the at the office of the High Commissioner. There is, I think, this incredible power that the aesthetics of having a computer tell you that something is 90% sure this X, Y, Z, or 70% sure or 60% sure that this is a human rights violation or that this is a terrorist stronghold. That kind of information, I think, does something to the human brain because the human brain decides that it trusts computers. So maybe part of this is also educational, uh, thinking critically about how we use technology as an aid, as supplementary information, and not outsource the judgment process entirely to that identification in itself. Yeah, I think that's very true. It's, it's, it's the sort of we defer to, 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 to computers very easily simply because they, they can calculate much better than we do. That's, we've become, in a, in a way, the... Uh, the weakest link in, in in many decision-making processes. So, so we're so used to defer to computers. If I think about when I was a, a student, we had to remember phone numbers if you had to call somebody or write it down somewhere. Now I know my own phone number, I know my wife's phone number, but for the rest, it comes up on my cell phone. I just press the button. So I defer to the computer. Um, and that's a very small uh, issue, of course, but it's, it's almost that kind of thing where one doesn't really want to be called out that you made a judgment call and, and then when they actually do the math or that you, you do it on the computer, you see that you were wrong. So our instinct is to defer, but there are many things that we can't really defer to, 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 to computers. Um, and that, of course, brings one then, if you even have the more advanced technology and autonomous weapons, uh, decisions about proportionality, how many uh, collateral damage, you know, do we really want to defer that to computers? And as a lawyer, I always think about the analogy of um, 
maybe those computers may be on average more accurate at some point. Many people dispute whether they will be, but, but the way technology develops, I won't be surprised if at some point they are more accurate. They can actually uh, predict better than, than, than human beings. But still, if we have the analogy of judges and say you have computers making judgments about whether this particular criminal is likely to reoffend, even if we find that over 10 years time the computers are more accurate than human beings i'm still not sure that we want computers to take that sort of decision yeah. there's something about human judgment that needs to be retained and and so meaningful human control so so um if you can have the tiering test about uh, about courts and in 10 years time you can't distinguish between computers and and human beings in fact the computers are much better even if computers pass that tiering test in courts I don't think we necessarily want them to take that decision. And I personally, and not many people agree with this, I think on the battlefield, even if they are better uh, over time, in terms of some judgment calls, it's, it's the human decision making that needs to be retained. That's the extreme case. But even with the case of drones, where it's still a remote uh, uh, controlled decision by a human being, even there, I think there's a danger that we defer too much to computers and we take away the human element. Um. Professor Haynes, um, I wanted to return to the question of status um, that we were discussing before. As someone who is certainly not versed in law in any circumstance, I'm really interested in this question of determining um, who is actually a combatant um, on the battlefield when it comes to the question of drones um, and who is actually engaged in conflict and not just how you can identify people, but how do you remedy a situation in which that determination has been made and it unfortunately was wrong. Um, I'm just wondering about the the legal side of that as well as the political aspects of that. Yeah, so, so the traditional approach with these non-international armed conflicts that we that, that come up mostly in the context of, 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 of drone strikes um, is that, that uh, the question is, does the person directly participate in hostilities? Is there a direct link to, uh, to, to harm, a direct causation of harm? Um, but I think over time, the the, uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross and others have followed this approach of saying we should also look at those who, even if you cannot in that particular case necessarily show this person is about to shoot someone, um, if this person performs a function as a member of an armed group, which on a continuous basis uh, entails participation in hostility. Then that person, just like a combatant who is a member of a state uh, armed uh, forces, uh, can be seen as a, a legitimate target. Um, so so, so that's, the, that's the starting point. This does not include those who um, merely trains or finance or, 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 or make propaganda, uh, except if it's directly linked, say, training with a particular uh, uh, operation, within a particular operation. Um, but, but in general, it's, it's, it's those who are members of the, of the armed group on the other side that may be targeted. And then the general rule is that they may be targeted at any point, uh, whether they're asleep or not. It's not if they're engaging in an in a, in a imminent threat that they may be targeted. And that's why the threshold for, for using force against them is much lower. Um, it's, it's, you don't have to wait until they pose a threat. So I want to bring in Niusha and, and Michael on this, what's turning out to be a legal whack-a-mole, it seems. Uh. Yeah, I think the question I have will maybe be helpful to other non-legal listeners, because um, I don't have a law background either. And one thing I'm wondering about is you said that you don't think there should be different laws specifically for regulating drones. 
um, but just that the ones we have should be applied very rigorously. So do you think they're being applied correctly at the moment? If not, why? And in what ways do you think they could be applied more rigorously? What would that look like? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think, again, it's useful to sort of think of these layers of protection. So on the outer layer, when whether a state may in the first place use force against another state, um, the, 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 what comes up in many cases there is consent. Um, so, so states say, well, that other state consented, but the state may have withdrawn the consent with Pakistan. That was for a long time uh, the, the case. So states would use that uh, would use drones on the territory uh, based on consent, but that consent was withdrawn, and and so it needs to be uh, understood that if consent is withdrawn, it's no longer valid, and 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 so that that uh, f first layer of defense should kick in and say that you can't use force at all on this on this territory. The other area where uh, uh, where I think there's there's uh, dispute. Um, and where um, there's a danger of this standards being watered down to, in a way, support the use of, of drones. Of course, states who want to use drones want the law to be as permissive as possible. So they're pushing in that direction for, for understandable reasons. I think for understandable reasons, others should push back to, to maintain it because it's if those states can use force at will, then other states can do so as well. And so the entire level of protection goes down. So the other area where states, states push back against the existing norms is on, on self-defense. So they say, well, we do not need to uh, await. The, 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 the charter talks about in Article 51 that the state has a right to uh, to defend self-defense, an inherent right to self-defense if an armed attack occurs. So that is often um, understood to be um, you must wait for the armed attack to occur and only then you can uh, retaliate. Th that's not realistic, really, because if you see that that the state is on the point of doing so, do you have to wait for that harm before you can go back? So it has it has developed over the years that that uh, uh, that, that state can engage in anticipatory self-defense if the situation is instant and overwhelming and leaves no room for deliberation and for alternatives. Um, but that's a very narrow window of opportunity and not everybody agrees with that. Um, what goes further then is to say, well, we want to have preemptive strikes. So we know there's going to be a problem at some point. There's a buildup of arms and, and uh, it looks like it's going in a certain direction. The threat does, there's not yet a threat, but this threat is about to start. And I think that's where the, the line should be drawn is there must be an existing threat. You can't just because you see things are going in a certain direction uh, have the right to, to use force on the territory of another state. So that's the, I think that's in terms of applying the existing standards where it's important that we say yes, um, and I'm certainly one of the school who says that anticipatory self-defense may be justifiable under certain circumstances, but very, very narrowly uh, defined. So that's the outside um, perimeter of protection. If you get to the inside, so, so, and that protects territory, and now you, you get to the protection of life, um, and there the, the, the um, uh, sort of impetus is for states to say too easily that we're dealing with an armed conflict because then the threshold for the use of force is lower. Um, and then it's not this sort of graduated use of force and they must first try the, if there's a, a, te if there's a threat to counter that, uh, that threat, it's 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 uh, they they have the right to use force and lethal force generally, uh, right from the start and based often then on status as well. Um, so so it becomes very important whether one is dealing really dealing with an armed conflict. 
um, is there a certain level of organization? And even if in one part of the world there is organization in Al Qaeda, and there's another part of in another part of the world organization that sort of uses the brand or, or affiliates with them, but they're not in the same organization. Mm then I think it's very dangerous to say that simply because they have the same ideals, you can have a global, uh, uh, wherever somebody is, you have a global war on terror. And if somebody's in one part of the world, maybe on an airplane with one of us going somewhere, um, it's a legitimate target, then we are collateral damage. And so I think that's a very dangerous sort of scenario to go to. But it's, it's understandable that states would want to lower that threshold if they want to solve a problem immediately, especially if, if boosted by the by the availability of, of technology. So the definition of when is one dealing with an armed conflict um, in the first place, then, but also then the territorial scope of the armed conflict, how far can one go? Um, and and uh, so some people say it's only in a one particular state, if there's an armed conflict, then you cannot at all attack in another part of the state, even if the same group is in, a, in another, uh, operates in another state. Um, others say, well, you can, whoever associates, there's a global armed conflict. The Red Cross has this approach of you actually have to look at the facts uh, at, uh, at a sort of on an ad hoc basis and say if there's a armed conflict in one part of the world and you go across the border, you have to ask whether those people in the other country are part of the same organizational structure. And that's an ad hoc kind of thing. It's not an open um, uh, card that you have that you can use which can easily uh, result in a, in a global sort of armed conflict. So I think those are the areas. Also, these, these um, what is di direct participation in hostilities? If you, if you too easily say it's a direct participation in hostilities, then civilians may be targeted. And then, of course, the, the, the targeting rules about what is collateral damage. If you have a very expansive notion of that, then uh, you, you will have less protection of the right to life. So again, I think that must be very narrowly uh, defined. Um, this is a question pretty directly related to what you were just talking about, so hopefully it'll function as a follow-up. Uh, I come at this not as a lawyer, but as someone who studies the politics of the war on terror. And as you've pointed out, states always seek the most permissive possible legal environment. And something that becomes striking when you're looking at the politics of this is how tactical they are about pursuing that environment. So uh, in the context of the Bush administration, for example, uh, right after 9-11, they simultaneously claim uh, that they're at war with Al-Qaeda and therefore only limited by IHL, but also that uh, Al-Qaeda is, is a non-state actor which, not, which is not part of the Geneva Conventions. They try mm. to claim they're also not you know, limited in that, in that way. And you see the same kinds of definitional things occurring later. So you pointed out with signature strikes, you said you know, being a male of military age is not sufficient, but the US has used that rationale for, for signature strikes in the past. And in terms of associated groups, which you also just spoke about, uh, the Obama administration has argued that uh, the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda are associated groups, even though they're actively in conflict with each other, not mm. just not allies, but in fact enemies. Mm. Um, so my question is basically about enforcement. Uh, given the tendency of states to use politics to try to pursue a maximally permissive legal environment, what are the prospects for a robust enforcement regime? What's the best way of ensuring that they basically can't manipulate the system in that way. Mm. Yeah, and, and so, so I, I think it's, uh, I think there are a number of, of, of elements to that. Um, one is transparency. Um, 
Well, let, let me just first say that, that there are those who say we need new legal rules for this and so on. My concern about that is if you open it up, the states who really want to lower the threshold for the use of force may actually change mm. the rules mm. in, in their favor. Um, but, but on the issue of enforcement, I, I think it's, it's uh, as, as we said at the beginning, international law's enforcement is very different from domestic law. It depends on peer pressure, it depends on political pressure, which of course works in the favor of drones because then the, the government does not have to account for body bags. It's, it's a safe way yeah. of conducting warfare as far as your own people are concerned. But at least the public opinion, I think, remains important uh, as a sort of a, 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 a kind of um, protective measure at some point. So transparency becomes very important in terms of, of what are the rules under which uh, drones can be used. They're often used outside of, of, of uh, sight uh, because the, the journalists cannot cover everywhere in the world. Um, of course, they... They, they, the, the data about a drone strike is available, but it's available to the government using it. Um, and whether they make that available is, is, is we know that they don't. Um, so often drone strikes are clandestine in the sense that, that they're not captured even in this day of cameras and so forth. But So it becomes very important since states have this additional power that in order to check it, that there's transparency. And that, that's why the human rights groups and myself and many others push for, for more clarity on the rules of, of uh, under which uh, force can be used uh, with drones. So enforcement, I think that's political sort of enforcement. Um, and that's why, why they, it's so important to, to focus on, 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 on transparency um, in terms of the, the, uh, the, the legal rules, in terms of the facts uh, as well. Um, of course, this is not it's, it's not the ideal world where one can expect states to give all their information out. They will simply not do it. So it must be subject to reasonable military uh, considerations, which again is a very open-ended phrase that can so easily be misused. But, but I think from a human rights point of view, there's also no point in, in claiming full and complete transparency about everything from states. They're not going to do it. And if you ask so much, they're going to say it's ridiculous. We're just going to do nothing. So one has to, in, in a way, work out the, the, what, is the, what is the optimal level of, of, uh, um, of transparency. The second point I think that is, that is relevant is that more and more states have armed drones now. And so if one particular state claims a specific legal regime for their own benefit, um, it's if they're the only one with drones, of course they're safe. Um, but if others have drones as well, that legal regime is going to apply to the others as well. So if one takes the longer term perspective, and and that's certainly something I try to emphasise in my reports, if one takes the longer term perspective, it's also in the interest of states um, to to not lower the international threshold. Also because uh, uh, international security depends on this. If every state can use drones in any other territory. Um, then the basis of international security is gone. So there's no easy answer in the sense that one can say there's, there's not a, a 911 that one can call to enforce or international police force and, and so forth. Um, it's a much more complicated, difficult thing, but, but I think starting point would be transparency and then in a way getting the message across that this, is a, this, this technology is becoming available everywhere. So, so one has an interest in having one consistent regime that applies everywhere, even if that constrains your own actions. So just to follow up and sort of encroach into Michael's international relations and policy domain a little bit, um, I, I wanted to get a little bit of your perspective as someone who has been involved closely with the UN process on how exactly states 
view international law i mean th- there is i mean there's a lot of discussion as michael alluded to and you spoke about in your answer as well about how states often try to sort of maneuver and manipulate the standards of international law to push the boundaries and, or possibly even you know weaponize international law to justify state policy and it was um referred to in an article by charles dunlop where he referred to this strategy called lawfare where law was literally being used to just sort of um push the boundaries of ethics so what i wanted to ask you was in terms of your interactions with states with regard to drones but also generally a broader question about the effect- effectiveness of international law as well what do you see as the future of this i mean this broad subject of international law what role can it actually play in ensuring that states take take on policy that's more in line with you know ethics and and human rights hmm. Yeah, I think it's a given that that states use use law. It's there's nothing innocent, uh, even on the on the domestic level. Those who are in charge are the ones who set the rules, and and it's it's. Uh, I'm not saying it's right, but that's how human beings work. Is that you prefer rules that favour you above rules that don't favour you. So so I don't think we should be surprised that states uh, states do this. Um, from my perspective, it's it's one can make the moral argument, and I think it's important to make the moral argument. Um, but it, but it's also uh, again f- following up on the earlier question it's also a question what is in the long term interest of, of of states and i often find the self interest argument to be the most powerful one but not the short term one because the short term one you play into the hands of the most powerful and then there's no balance on power but it's the long term uh, uh, self interest and that is that we that we need a we need a international legal system that is respected uh, that contains violence whichever way it goes um and and everybody has an interest in that so 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 that's certainly something that i've tried to emphasize very much is that uh, that the long term view is the one it's in an age of 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 uh, um, populism it's not easy to 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 do that and i think we are in terms of the use of drones um under president obama i think there's a 10 times increase in the in the use of drones uh it's difficult to say exactly where we're going now but i don't think we are going back on that <laughs> at least um and 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 so it's it's also in our domestic politics that 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 what i find missing is not so much altruism because that's that's quite exceptional when people have random acts of kindness to strangers and and, and that's that kind of thing so that's not something you can rely on but what we what we can insist on is that the states follow the long term self interest uh, view enlightened self interest uh so christoph just just as sort of a concluding uh question i wonder if there's something that you want our audience to walk away from this episode with in terms of their understanding or their knowledge of how the international system works vis-a-vis uh drone strikes uh, what would that be what 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 would be sort of a an enlightened perspective to walk away with so to speak well if 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 I, if i may perhaps on a, a sort of cross-cutting level is the role of technology um and it it really strikes me that technology is a is a tool that can be used for good or bad um and we 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 must not be blinded by technology and think the more technology the better it's also not the opposite the, the the less we have technology the better it's neither of those it's much more difficult um and and that means we have to be constantly vigilant about the use of technology and and what what as a lawyer i i always sort of think that we can actually make rules that constrain human behavior but i'm very much under the impression of of the natural forces of technology and 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 those laws yeah. um and and where the law 
human law can stand up to that. So that kind of natural law is something, especially if one looks at how drones develop and how we defer to them and how we defer to computers uh, and the whole future of the role of technology. Um, I think we have to be very careful about uh, about using, yes, we must continue to use technology and coming from Africa, I think also that, that one of the ways in which Africa should make sure that it's uh, that it respects human rights is that it that it uses technology but we have to be very careful about how much we allow and there's a sort of uh, term that's developing about meaningful human control in determining targeting and so forth which to me applies not only to auto to autonomous weapons but really to our entire system so job creation uh, the way in which we communicate with each other through facebook how we get information through google all of that's mediated through technology yeah. And, and it's important that, that we keep as human beings, as a, so my call is to the species, I suppose, to, 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 to keep our control over, um, over the agency that we have as human beings. Right. For everybody out there, don't outsource your judgment to computers. Like, turn off that Facebook, deactivate your Twitter. <laughs> Not being a Luddite or anything. Don't use your personal armed drone that you just have hanging around. <laughs> Especially don't do that. I know it's tempting, but... <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christoph. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our panelists, as always. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. We'll be back next week, so tune in for more declarations. You can find us at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast or at our Twitter handle at declarationspod. Please also subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud or anywhere else where you might find your podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.